Welcome to my podcast where I talk about all things related to money, mindset, finance, business, and investing. My name is Royston Cumberbatch, a qualified accountant with over 30 years' experience in finance and business. All right, so welcome to the next version of the Financial Intelligence Mindset Podcast. And we are bringing you different guests with different backgrounds on different topics all the time. Today, I've got a very special guest today, uh, Steve Tosh. And he is actually the director, the owner of, you know, a risk management company, you know, to do with bribery and fraud and corruption. He's obviously based in the UK, but his company does a lot of work globally. I think it's actually his company is called Global Risk Alliance. So that the name and all tells you what his company is all about. So welcome to you, Steve. And Steve, I'll call you Steve if that's okay. Uh, maybe yeah, you, can, you, you, you can just like tell us about, you know, your backstory, you know, growing up. Um, you know, were you always into risk and corruption or is it something that you emerged into? I believe you mentioned that you had a background in um, in law enforcement. So what, what was it like growing up in terms of like, um, like think, thinking about business or thinking about being an employee? Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Well, firstly, thank you, Royston, for the invitation to speak to you today. Um, it's, it's a great pleasure and to, to talk about this, this subject that a, a lot of people are really interested in, interested in learning about. Um, I suppose my backstory, um, fraud corruption is something that in many respects was, I came into by not, uh, luck, but um, I joined, um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Scotsman uh, through and through, uh, but I live in, in uh, England in, in, near Cambridge. But uh, I joined the law enforcement uh, way back in 1990. Wow. And uh, around 1996, I, I got into criminal investigations. And I was, I'd, I really didn't have an opportunity. I went into the fraud squad and, and looking at uh, anti-corruption and uh, corruption and bribery and uh, fraud in uh, large, high-value, complex uh, contracts and projects. Yeah. And it was an area that I enjoyed, uh, and uh, I, don't, I can't say why, uh, because a lot of these cases lasted two or three years, wow. just in one case. So a lot, of, a lot of individuals didn't like it because they were just working on one case rather than many. Um, but I, I enjoyed it, and it's something that I really, really uh, enjoyed and learned. And today, uh, I think the thing that I like about it is the, I suppose, the diversity of, of ways in which individuals can, can, can commit crime in these areas. Yes, yes. Um, and, and move monies from organisations, the public sector, private sector. So every day is a learning day for me as well, So yeah. it, which is what I like because my, my job is in that continual learning process is how can I ensure that organisations are not impacted by these new risks? I like it. So I like me, it. Like yeah, okay, so, so for ahead. me, that's the joy in it. And that's why um, the you know uh, why I like it so much. Now, in law enforcement, I, I uh, moved you know, through the ranks and I eventually headed a, a anti-corruption unit, uh, headed an uh, anti-money laundering team, and I also uh, headed a, an intelligence capability, a national intelligence capability. Wow. And it was that area as well helped me develop the model that, that I've, I've developed today because particularly in the intelligence side when I talk about intelligence you're talking about information on crime risk yes and it's how you use that information to from an operational perspective on particular cases or particular risks or how you use it for managerial uh, decision making 
or how you use it for uh, an organization's strategic approach. So what you know, how we use that for a one, three or five year plan, how to mitigate our risk. I like this a lot. I like that. So that, yeah, that, so, that, so, that so, makes so, sense to me. Yeah. So we yeah, have yeah. a very strong background, as you said, in, in law enforcement, a strong background in obviously bribery and corruption, and we're more or less understanding how people do bribes and how people do corruption, if I'm correct, you know what I mean? And then yes, I'm, I'm, and, bit, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. No, sorry, and, and, and that's basically what I've, you know, I moved into the private sector about nine years ago. Okay, yeah. Um, and my focus, or what, you know, one of the areas of focus has purely been on education because of the breadth of the various types of, of fraud and corruption that could come on. I mean, I certainly document 23 typologies of procurement fraud and corruption. And within that, there are various methods. Yes. And then there are various areas of procurement that, you know, there's at least 20 areas that can be targeted within procurement projects. And yeah. then within that, there's various individuals who can influence the procurement of projects. So there's actually hundreds of methods and areas where fraud and corruption can happen. It's not just your government official. There are actually many individuals in many areas uh, that can be targeted. And that's why... It's a big area. Uh, it's, it's a very big field, and obviously having that, um, having that 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 you know, law law enforcement background, I guess helps you even in the private sector. So, what was it that made you make the leap from say working for government to working for the private sector? I ah, it's not your own company. What was it I mean, that the, that, yeah, that, sure. that that drove you to do that? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of reasons. Um, I suppose. I had the opportunity because back, certainly back in 2009 when the, the UK, well, globally, there was a financial crisis. The, the UK uh, basically uh, looked to cut back law enforcement by about 20,000 staff. Wow. And they basically made, they offered redundancy and I, I took the opportunity uh, purely for, for a number of reasons. Uh, and, and I certainly saw the fact that um, there was a huge gap, I suppose, in the market in relation to uh, risk mitigation, prevention and education that wasn't yeah. necessarily being provided uh, globally. So I, I took that leap uh, and I set up my own company back in 2012. I like it. I like it. I like it. Uh, and and do- from there, uh, sorry, from there I moved to Dubai as a CEO of a risk management company. Um and then in 2019, I stepped back to the UK uh, to, to start my own company. Well uh, done. But, well done. Yeah. So, you, so you've done quite well for yourself anyway, just specialising in that particular area. Am I correct? To, yeah, absolutely. And, and every 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 additional client that I've, I've had throughout the, the last nine years has given me different perspective on um, certainly the how I've developed the, uh, I suppose, our framework because one of the, the, the piece of learning for me was back in 2013, I um, headed the working group for the British Standard in developing the uh, guide to prevent uh, the BS10501 guide to implement uh, procurement fraud controls. Yeah, and it was my first, uh, I suppose, understanding recognition of a framework used to identify and prevent uh, fraud and corruption. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So you're part of your company now, as you said in the last, um, since coming back from Dubai and working in your own company. Um, so do you have your, your, have your own framework? Um, do, yeah, do, yes. Do, do you want to talk to us about that? Like what, what's, I mean, what, what's involved in your framework? And if someone's going to work in with you, what kind of stuff that you might do with them? 
Yes, yeah, certainly. It's it's. I've I've certainly for nine years. Two of the areas that I've I've, I've always educated on was the the risks uh, to an organisation, and then looking at the mitigation, and then particularly projects is laying over these risks uh, into a, uh, an organisation's live project to see where yeah. it can be targeted by fraud. But uh, more recently. Um, not just in the training, I, I developed the solution because I'm sort of looking at what does the client want, what is the end result to ensure that it does, you know, fraud corruption doesn't happen again, or at least it can be the, the risk can be mitigated. Yeah. And what I've done over the last six months is produced um, a a sixteen step approach. Wow. Uh, sixteen which, which steps. Can be consistently wow. used by organisations. Quite so. Quite a detailed model. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I've, I've tried to keep it simple. And the first four steps uh, relate to risk planning. And this is where the, you know, the intelligence side and the, the risk assessment side comes into play, yeah. is then looking at an organization, what's currently in place, looking at their, their, uh, how they collect data, how they use information to uh, assess their own risk and how they document that. And then how they are looking at a, I suppose, a, an anti-corruption framework that they can build into. Yeah, yeah, I understand, yeah. So, so and that's the first, and that's if, if, if like, I've, I've tried to break it down into sort of four key okay. steps. Yeah, so that's the first four steps. So the first four step is, as you said, it's kind of, is it risk planning, risk identification, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, and then go ahead, and just, it, just yeah. keep telling us about the, about, about the model. Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, it's, it, the first step is about you know an organisation understand where they are right now, yeah. what information sources are there, and you know because a lot of organisations actually don't recognise that a lot of data sources uh, are on corruption risks they've already got within their organisation. They may only look at finance and procurement data, but there's other data like maintenance data. Yeah, quality assurance data, and then there's audit reports, investigation reports, but they're not centrally held. Or, you know, human yeah. resources data, looking at conflicts of interest, and a lot of departments don't share that information, so they'll never understand the, the level of risk that they've got in their own organisation. Yeah. So that leads into the second step is um, looking at how we then build that into the risk assessment and how we build it into. Uh, a model for the risk assessment. Who are the interested parties within an organisation you know, or external parties for that matter, depending on whether it's a national organisation, who would we want to be involved in a you know, if, if we were to create a risk assessment, who would want to know? You know, you know at a government level, there's different organisations, different ministries, you know, law enforcement. Yeah. So you have stakeholders within that. And how do we build in a model so that if we do an annual assessment, it makes it easier if you've got a model that you're going through the same methodology every year. You've already got, uh, it's like a risk assessment one year, so the next year becomes much easier. Yeah. And the hard work is done in the first year. So the second year is just going through the process again. So it's how we build into that model in step two and the risk assessment itself. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. And it's funny, because yeah. as you were talking, it reminds me, I mean, I've done Sabine's Oxley, you know, um, yeah. and it's really, it's a strong financial risk mitigation, but the first thing is really to, it's cause, as you said, is looking at your, your existing processes that you have, 
and understanding the risk that you have in those processes, you know. So I guess the same like for like for the fraud and prevention, the risk bribery is like look look looking at a lot of organization processes holistically, you know, whether it's HR processes, whether it's um, you know processes for taking on new contracts, whether it's um, financial processes, and just understanding what is the potential risk that someone can do um, a bribery and corruption, you know, within those processes. And then I guess from that, then you, you kind of assess the risk. Is it high? Is it low? Is it medium? And then I guess you start to look to mitigate. Is that how your framework works at a high level? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, 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 I suppose the, the third major step is, is, if you like, the implementation. And again, they say the risk mitigation. So it's, it's looking at the, in some respects, the flow of information within the organisation. If you, yeah. First, if you identify a risk. So, you know, as, as an example, um, I, I was approached by an organisation recently around a whistleblower hotline uh, and how it could be implemented. Now, when, when, I, when I discussed it with the, the client, one of the uh, areas they hadn't considered was if we get whistleblower reports, how do we deal with it? Have we got a structure within our own organisation yeah. to deal with these reports? And, and they uh, hadn't. So before we even think of that, we should actually introduce a, a, like a compliance structure and a you know, reporting structure and information flow to you know, the head of legal or the CEO or you know, whatever the structure is in the organisation yeah. before we consider that. So really the, the third step for me is, is about looking at the current prevention approach and how, what we need to implement because we've now got the risk assessment. What do we need to mitigate that risk? But we also then need to look at things like detection. What proactive methods can we introduce around audit, around data analysis? And we've, as a company, we have a schedule of over 70 common risk areas that, that we would look, you know, look at or advise clients to look at around different areas. Because it's not just uh, finance or, or procurement. It could be areas like asset management. Some of the biggest corruption cases I've been involved with are around company assets, you know, the theft of assets and how we devalue them or dispose of them uh, because companies can lose millions just in that area because they're not actually looking at the warehouse because that's if like at the end, particularly the end of the, the supply chain and they've already bought the, the item, they're not actually looking at where it's actually going within their organisation and sometimes or a lot of times it's getting diverted for personal use or to other companies. Yeah, I got it. I got it. So, yeah, uh, in, in, interestingly, because I am, um, you know, you start. We start talking about like risk and bribery and corruption. Obviously, my podcast is called Financial Intelligence Mindset. But there, there are lots of synergies between financial intelligence and um, and and the way people should use information in their business to make decisions that help them improve their performance. And in the case of what you're doing, people are using data and information already in the business to make decisions that mitigates the risk, which ultimately helps them to achieve their results. So I want to get into kind of more into the mindset of a, a risk, yeah. um, a, a risk person like yourself. Say. So, I mean, what will make someone want to become a risk expert or why should an organization become more, more risk averse? I mean, I mean, we, what kind of mindset should a CEO have or someone in the organization have to really want to take on risk management or something that, yeah. that's, um, that is so core and fundamental to their success? Yeah, sure. I mean, a, an easy example is the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners 
I think it was last year or the year before, highlighted, um, I mean, this was in relation just to fraud, mind you, this wasn't, this wasn't just corruption, but they highlighted that in the, I think they, they reviewed like 1,500 companies, just over 1,500 companies who had been impacted by fraud. And 6% of the frauds, and a lot of them were high value, or would be high value, had been uh, detected for over five years. Wow. And that's and that that's the ones that were detected. You know, the, the, I think the largest percentages were, were identified within six months. But even at six months, that's still a long period. But five years, the values, you know, particularly large companies, would be in the millions, potentially hundreds of millions. Yes. Um, so having a, a risk structure, uh, and I'm not saying that we stop it in all cases, but we certainly mitigate a lot of that risk um, simply because, I mean, just paying for a few people. Um, and this is why in the third step, I talk about if like the decision-making and change management process, because unless you have the information on risk to make those key decisions, then um, you will never identify a lot of the risk because a lot of the, the big bribery prosecutions and companies that have been prosecuted, for instance, by the Foreign Drug Practices Act, they have, what I've seen is they have these little cases going along, we've identified this fraud or this bribery, but they're low value. And then they get hit by hundreds of millions of fraud or bribery and they don't understand why they did it, yes, why, yes. why this happened. Because they, ha they haven't been looking at their own data, it, for, for my, my experience. Because if you look at your own data um, and identify where your sources are of, of risk, particularly you're proactive in looking at... Um, your financial data, your procurement data, your asset management, it will highlight key areas of risk that will allow, if you have, you know, I always talk about like a central compliance uh, board or, or group, you know, who make decisions around the, this data. So where you list the, 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 if you list the risks in your initial planning assessment and then list the additional risks in the, the, the full assessment, that will allow a central group of, group of leaders or managers to make key decisions around controls, the prevention or proactive, you know, or policy, looking at which department, like human resources, depending on who is involved, for instance, in the conflicts of interest policy, have you got policy? So it allows them to introduce, um, you know, make decisions and introduce change management into the into the process. So for me, it's the, that, you know, the risk and assessment of risk, particularly in, Organizations are either public or private sector, or even for that, things like the international development contracts, as an yeah. example, or organizations where we have weak governance because the, the supply chain might be long, or there's no one in country to look at how the monies are getting spent. So it's having that process in place. And we've certainly seen it over COVID because you know, controls were, were lax or were weak. Uh, because you know people were working from home in many respects, yeah. and, and uh, what would normally be um, a tendered item or contract or project was done single source, which allowed the influence manipulation of contracts, and, and we've seen that globally, not just in the UK but globally. So having that you know that key decision making group that can allow the change management process and with the identifier risk can then go back and say, no, this, these controls aren't working or we need to change the policy or we need to add additional resources, get additional yeah. expertise to look at the compliance process. If you have that decision-making process, that allows the process to work. 
Yeah, I got uh, it. I got it. I got it. So, so in terms of, I mean, I'm I'm still trying to get into some of the kind of cultural shift that an organization has to make in order to 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 because some sometimes people they have the data, they have the information, mm, they're probably not, not not aware of the risks. But now you you come on now and you say to them, no, guys, you need to be looking at at this information. You need to be having a functional analysis kind of data. I mean, what kind of shift they have to make in their culture, in the way they work, yeah. or in their behavior in order to take on board what you're showing them? I mean, from your experience, I mean, yeah. Yes, no, and it's 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 one of the one of the steps. The step two in our sixteen step model yeah. is looking at cult, the the current culture. Yeah. And when I talk about culture, I'm talking about two things: communication and engagement. Yeah. So communication, not just the tone from the top, but how we communicate throughout the organization. So if if there's a new, you know, anti-fraud or anti-corruption policy introduced, how is that communicated to all staff, suppliers, partners? Do we uh, want to get you know, the public involved, local government, or government involved in what we're doing? So how do we communicate our attitude and our zero tolerance towards bribery and corruption or fraud for that, or a- any financial crime? So it's about the communication, first of all, and then engagement. I mean, for me, if we're going to change culture within an organisation, we have to have our own staff drive the culture. Yes, of course. So therefore, so therefore, they have to get involved. So if we want to introduce a new anti-fraud initiative or anti-fraud, uh, anti-corruption culture, uh, uh, we have to get their input, uh, whether it's through a forum or questionnaires, but it has to be a regular. So it's regularly uh, introduced, talked about uh, yeah. within the organisation and outside the organisation. You know, do we have something on a website that's briefing about what we're doing? Do we engage suppliers, as an example? Because one of the things I don't see many, if any, organization doing is we look at our own organization for fraud risk or corruption risk. So the the supplier or the partner may be the risk. However, when we are onboarding suppliers, do we we ask them, what are you doing to protect our organization? So what's your anti-fraud policy? How do you communicate with staff? How do you train your staff on corruption and fraud risk? So we should be asking those questions before they become a, a supplier. Yeah. So therefore, yeah. it reduces our own uh, risk and, and revenue loss ultimately. Yeah. Well, ultimately, that's called due diligence, right? In terms of yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But the, the, in the due diligence part, we may look at the the um, the size of the organisations that the, you know how much the organisations making. Maybe may, may even look at the the shareholders or or the, the executives. But what are we doing in relation to anti-fraud corruption? And in that part, I, I just don't see that those questions getting asked. Um, and that, to me, that's quite important. That you, have, you know, if you like, at the front door of the organisation, what are we doing to make sure that these individuals aren't coming to our organisation to to basically steal our assets or defraud us? Yeah, yeah. But I, I guess as much you have to have, as you said earlier. Um, you know, preventative measures and detective, kind of de- detective and preventative measures. You know what I mean? Yes, um, no, because, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and one thing that came to my mind earlier as you was talking, because um, I said I had done some level of risk management, but not mainly financial risk management. It's mainly my area of yeah. expertise. We have something called KRIs, key risk indicators, you know? Yeah. Um, whereby, you know, you have certain triggers that can, that can trigger Based on this, and it's all based on data, based on information, based on yeah. people's behavior that can really trigger, you know. So I guess, um, you know, from a cultural perspective, you, you have to be able to look at, be able to encourage people to look at these things 
yes, or, to, or, or to monitor these things. Oftentimes, people have the data, as you said, but they're just not actually monitoring it. Yeah. Or, or they're just not even, yeah, the only thing that's actually important that you look at it. All right, so let's focus more on your business per se. Like you getting into business now, obviously coming from a, you know, if you want to call it a law enforcement background, and then you yeah. got into business. So did you have any um, any formal training in business? I mean, how was it for you making that switch? From, no, say, no, no formal training at all. I mean, I knew from, I suppose, running a number of departments that I knew I had the sort of managerial leadership skills. Yeah. However, from um, stepping into business, it's, it's a completely different um, approach uh, and so many new areas to consider around things like, you know, uh, Yes, even the basics of social media, financial management. There's so many additional areas yeah. that um, you have to consider when building a business. Um, I agree. Um, yeah, I agree. So when you started, like, did you start on your just on your own, or you started with a team? How was it? For no, you? I started on my own. I started on my own. Although I had, um, when I stepped out into business, I had a certainly one or two strong contacts where we had, you know, already were developing business. So it made that step much easier. Okay. Uh, yeah, I understand. And, I understand. And that was yeah. that was our, our sort of approach there. Yeah. Um, so it was a valuable step, and, and it linked us in with, for instance, uh, I was the um, global anti-corruption advisor for the Chartered Institute of Procurement Supply. Okay. At the time. So it allowed me to get into uh, international clients uh, and advise them on, on corruption risk and, and training and, and consultancy. So it was a valuable. It certainly was a valuable tool, a valuable lesson at that yeah, yeah. at that time. Sort of the power of networking, right? I guess power of networking, yeah. Yes, and for for business, it's that's important. Having strong connections is is really important for developing business, without a doubt. I agree. So, um, so getting into business, what are some of the things that you learned, like uh, in early stage in business, that if you were going to advise one of your colleagues, you're going to advise someone, you know, your past colleagues, I mean. To get into business, what are some of the things that you did that you wish you had done differently, or you wish you have known, or what are some of the lessons you learned in your early stage in running your business? I mean, certainly, um, certainly from the, the, the working in Dubai and the CEO of Dubai, one one of the, the the hard lessons, I suppose, is having the right expertise within your organisation, uh, because if you get that wrong it can be disastrous because you're basically paying for somebody who's not bringing you work or not creating outputs that you want. And it can be really impactful to the organization. So for me, um, taking the time to really not necessarily research the individual, but make sure you've got the right person in there who's good, who wants to be successful. Yeah. Um, and not just your business, but they want to be successful themselves. They don't just want a job. They want to, to make an impact. They want to uh, make changes and, and, and develop themselves. So it's really important. That's really, really important. Um, that's certainly one of the, the lessons. And, you know, and also things like getting the right people who know about uh, marketing, who know about sales is yeah. key. It's key because it brings a new business. And if you haven't yeah. got that, you're you've got you know you're working with both arms behind your back, really. So yeah, it's amazing. Uh, yeah without it's a doubt, they, they, they're key without without a shadow of a doubt. 
I love it. I love it because even me, I'm I'm working with a small team of people, and um, and I had to like you know spend time even training them or or, or, or even hiring firing people just yeah. to get the right people who kind of understand where you're going and can really support you, as you said, whether it's a marketing or whether it's financial support or whatever it's whatever it might be. But you do need the right people on board, quite like that. Yeah. And and what would you say has been the biggest success you've had earlier on in your business, and what do you attribute to it? Like to that, I suppose the biggest success, uh, I suppose earlier on, was we in the previous previous what we did, we we had a uh, a significant contract with a, a, an organisation that's on a fifty billion dollar uh, project, uh, a, a sort of national international project, and we identified hundreds of millions of dollars worth of fraud corruption risk. Wow, and for me. That was a great success because for for the the little money they paid for uh, ourselves and our consultants, we had we closed the door on a lot of of risk, and that's simply by you know, again it's looking at particularly as a risk, particularly you know, looking at you know, the basics of what's the culture like, you know, how, what's our policies like, and changing the message within the organisation, and then looking at common uh, data sources, things like. The onboarding process wasn't getting done correctly, um, yeah, and closing yeah. the, and you know, closing those doors. But ultimately, looking at key areas of you know, and this is where things like procurement expertise comes into play as well, or finance expertise, or asset management expertise. Who have you have the right individuals? You might not necessarily be able to say that there's fraud there, but what they can say is there's something wrong with this organisation's process in these areas, and then we can look at what is the root cause. And that's where we have great success is because the, the, the processes are wrong and then questioning why are they wrong? Is it just an efficiency or is it something more illicit? Um, and that's where we have a sort of great success. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense a lot. So in terms of like your own company, like, um, you know, um, is it Global Risk? What's the name again? Risk Alliance, yeah. Global, Global Risk, Risk Alliance. Alliance. Global Risk Alliance. So in terms of that, I mean... Um, do you find that most people are coming to you now for or or you go to people? I mean, I mean, how was you like how do you find your clients now? I mean, yeah. It's a bit of both, really. Yeah, no, it, it, because it's a new company, we're not, you know, we haven't been visible on social media, although we you know we, we have developed a lot of areas. Yeah. Uh, and continue to develop. I mean, it's it's I mean, I, I have got a number of international contacts and we're always in discussion and, and looking to develop new business. Um, we've also just developed the um, anti-corruption education network, which is a membership organisation, yeah. um, to develop individuals' knowledge and expertise and have access to global anti-corruption experts. So that you know, the, the marketing of that uh, is key for us because um, because it, it will bring in you know, individuals and organisations into our, our environment there. But it has been a challenge uh, because for any new business. It's it's making yourself visible to the right clients and it's identifying the Correct. right clients. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Because not all. Because regardless of fraud and corruption, a lot of organisations are not interested. Then the the, the, the for, you know, as an example in the oil and gas sector, you know, over the years they they've made so much money that you know uh, fraud and corruption is incidental in many respects because there's so much revenue there. So they haven't placed the proper um, emphasis on compliance and risk. For individuals to look at organisation risk, but now that the, I suppose now that the revenues have you know, dropped out of the market, yes, yes. they're now they're now trying to protect the revenues. 
Yeah, that so makes it's, sense. It's, so yeah. it's, for, for the challenge for, for us is, is identifying the right clients who are, who are interested in risk mitigation, who want to protect the revenues uh, and want to uh, have an impact in their organisation, and particularly in, uh, from a national perspective. Um, in developing countries, as an example, uh, we want to make sure that we protect these revenues, that they don't get diverted to Dubai or somewhere else um, you know, to, to, hide them, to, to hide the monies. Yeah, so, makes sense. Um, so, to me, that's really important. So that, that that's the that's the key challenge. That's the key development area for us is is identifying individuals and organisations that want to make an impact in these areas. Yeah, but I guess as you say now, the educational aspect is quite key, right? Educating your potential clients or educating the community, yeah, educating people on on the importance of risk and uh, of, of you know like identifying people in your organization who might be up to you know corruption and bribery so i guess that that's a really 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 important aspect you know what i mean um yeah so so if if people come to work with you do, do you actually edu- how do you like do you have an educational program like do you have a, i mean i mean like do you help if people want to know what is risk and corruption how i mean what tell me more about it i mean yeah. Has you got a program to kind of educate people on that? Yeah, I mean, basically, the it ultimately depends what the client wants because it, you know every client's different, and they may only want you know half a day on, on it, or they might want the, the full training. For for me to make the greatest impact, what what uh, the sort of method of it's like the sixteen step approach is. Firstly, you talk about the the risks. So individuals understand what the 23 typologies are. They understand what we're, we're within their organization, can, they can be impacted. Mm-hmm. Your key roles and individuals that can influence and manipulate the process. So that's the first day. Yeah. And the second day is about uh, risk mitigation around detection of various methods. And then the third day would be taking a live project. So you have, particularly if you've got the expertise in the organization who work on the projects, they understand the risks already. So when they have this additional knowledge about fraud and corruption, they can then lay that over their own project. So they, they will then tell you, um, because I don't really necessarily need to do all the work, because yeah. I mean I, I, I would understand what the risks are in, in any project that you know once but once they talk to you, we've got the for instance, the CEO involved or or you know senior change managers or project managers or procurement, you know, quality assurance staff, whoever's involved in the project to then walk through their role and the key stages of the project. They basically create their own risk register because yeah, they then yeah. understand. You know, they understand that oh, there's a risk there. I never thought about that. So they actually find what they do, and this is one of the values of doing this because they, at the end of the training, three-day training course, they come out with if like a a, a draft document or a risk register for the, their project. Yeah. And particularly where a project is done more than once, it's a huge value because then you can then update it from the first project and add it to the second. Makes sense. Yeah. So there's a, there's huge value for me. There's huge value in training. I'm certainly in a number of clients. They've had, if you like, they, not necessarily the eureka moment, but they've realised one that they're they're uh, they've actually got fraud going on right now. Yeah. Because they they, they suddenly recognise. Oh, that's why that individual was we did you know you know, change that to single source. It, it didn't make sense at the time, but now it makes sense. So then they go back and look, or they've they've looked at their own organisation and realised. You know, like they haven't got a compliance department, uh, or they haven't got a whistleblower policy to protect individuals where they've had whistleblowers before. Um, or they, for instance, one organisation they had a lot of uh, SCPA risks um, 
or, or didn't appreciate because they weren't looking at all the data sources. Yeah. But actually, fact, they've got a lot more because they had a, they, they dealt with a lot of cash management as well at events. So they're paying people in cash, and they actually didn't realize potentially there's a bribery risk there. Yeah. So what they did from our training, they introduced uh, a new department around data uh, management and data set, assessment of their own data. I think it was around eight people to look at their own organization data um, to mitigate their risk. So the potential for education is huge. Good job, yeah, yeah. Not just individual's knowledge, but ultimately yeah. can impact an organization and, and the change management process. Yeah. So yeah. So is your training online? Is it is it a particular location? Like like how can someone if someone was listening to this and it goes, wow, this is you know, anti anti bribery, anti corruption. This is something I need to look into because um this 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 guy uh, Stephen Tosh sounds like he's the right man to work with. Um, you know, Global Global, Global Risk Alliance. You know, they, they look you up and it goes, no, yeah, now we want to kind of book on a course or whatever it is. Is it an online course or you have, you have, you have to be there physically? It's a bit of both, really. I mean, within, for instance, within the membership organization, we've got a lot of uh, online courses. We've got a lot of webinars and podcasts mm-hmm. that they can d- dip into without the, the, the groups that are there and without the um, access to the experts. So that's one part, which to me is hugely valuable. Yeah. Um, but you've also, we, I also do uh, one day courses online, which you can get access to the website, or I'll do uh, on site uh, uh, training with, with organizations. Although that's basically yeah, all training organizations realize that was stopped because of COVID yeah, for the last yeah. year, year and a half. Um, but that's, that's there. So, so there's a real breadth of opportunity. I mean, I, I, I travel internationally and I've also done uh, a number in the UK for, for organizations on different aspects or developed courses around their organization because it's not a case of this is my course, that's it. Um, I always talk to the organization before and look at the, their requirement and risks because one of the things, the new things that I've introduced is uh, I like organization because one of the, one of the I suppose the challenges in any course or any organization that wants to send people on training is that, oh, it's just another course. What does it, what does the organization get out of it? Yeah. Well, the method that I've uh, recently introduced is that firstly, they, the individuals going on the course will take one of our e-learning courses. And then what they have to do is uh, an assignment around that course and their learning and how that, that learning will impact their organization. So it's looking at, if you like, fraud management. Yeah. And, and so automatically, you, you're creating a, a document, you're creating a risk register already around, because it's, it's individuals within your own organization that identify the risks. Yeah. So, and so for, for, from the learning, they're getting that, and then they, they will present their findings in, in the training course. And at the end of the training course, like I said, the organization then gets a report and a, 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 a risk register of all the risks that were highlighted and identified within the training course. And it can be quite impactful. I've certainly done it before around that. And one of the, one of the organizations was around 20 pages yeah. uh, from the report we did. So it, it's, to me, that's the value. It's not just individuals learning. It's actually the value for the organization. That can be really impactful because it can you know, allow the change management process. I get it. I get it. And the website is what? What is the website that people can it's, find? It's Global Risk Alliance. It's global-riskalliance.com. Okay, right. So people can go on there and get lots of information on there, etc. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So um, just bring just to bring back a little bit more in, um, into the financial aspect, because that's kind of what my podcast is mainly about. Um, for you, and just listen, I mean, there is some synergy, but what does the word financial intelligence mean to you? Financial intelligence is such a broad thing. I mean, for, for, for me, 
I suppose financial intelligence, it's not just about the, 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 pre, the, the pre-risks around you know, companies or individuals that want to you know, defraud your organisation, but it's also, yeah. I suppose, it's, it's the, the intelligence around um, when the crime has been committed, the fraud and corruption has been committed, and, and how that, the, those monies have been diverted and used. Uh, and I, I like to use one example, where, um, and this is where, you know, why the, 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 the assessment and, and regular data analysis, particularly in larger organisations who have a lot of invoicing, a lot of purchasing, uh, is looking at that data regularly or consistently. Yeah. Um, because this this was in, in, in relation to a bribery case, although it can relate to anything. And we were invited to look at a particular individual yeah, and um, one of the one of the areas we looked at was the the um, looked at a period of six months invoicing in relation to um, all organisations, and then looking at um, the change of bank account details because that we, we felt that 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 may be one of the areas in which money was getting diverted out of the company. Yeah. Now, when you when you when you take a snapshot for all the companies, there maybe there should be one or two changes in a six month period, but there shouldn't be many. But within this organization, there was hundreds. Hundreds of what change of banking details? Hundreds of change of banking details. So, so the companies, <laughs> so suppliers' banking details were getting changed. Yeah. So when we looked at that data, um, we were given it on an Excel spreadsheet. When we looked at the data, we identified, for instance, that eight companies were going into one bank account. De- you know, different, different companies going into one bank account. And the bank account wasn't a company, it was an individual. Yes. Ah, so it was quite yes. clear that there was basically money laundering going on. And there was there was so many methods in which it was done, but they weren't looking at the system. Yeah, well, so it was only by simple yeah. manipulation of the data and reviewing the data and using various techniques which we, we document, uh, we've identified various methods. And, and um, unfortunately, the, the, the organisation didn't invite us to progress the investigation. Uh, they did that internally because they realised what they had was it's not organised crime necessarily, but it's, or, it's organised criminality. There was yes. a number of individuals within the uh, organisation who were diverting monies to their own, own bank accounts. Yes, 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 yes. Who colluded to do that? Yes, and, some, and, yeah, and, and it's amazing is that because in my early career, like in the UK, I was like a treasury manager for organisation, and I was involved in um, managing all aspects of the cash management, as well as in terms of making payments. You know, it's a smaller company, so yeah. and it's easy. And even back then, as talking about almost twenty years ago, I, I identified how easy it was to kind of, you know, raise an invoice, get it approved, but just have the funds diverted to a different bank account. So, yeah, sure. it, so it appears like, 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 like if you're paying the, um, the, the company, the person authorizing believes that they're paying this company for this you know, kind of service, but the money's being diverted to a different um, bank account. Yeah. Well, oftentimes yeah. these things uh, in bigger companies have to be done by a, a number of people who kind of come together and yeah. and they kind of like like collude or you know I mean, agree to yeah. work together. And, and, and as an example, uh, one company, and this was a bank actually. Uh, they um, there's usually, for instance, in procurement, there's three steps. You create the requisition, so someone you know identifies a requirement and they create what's called a requisition to say i need to buy we need to buy this this item or product or, or service or whatever then you, then they create someone else should create then a purchase order so if like a, a create a, a requirement the requirement and if like the contract to to buy the item 
And then yeah. the, the third part is the invoice. Yeah. So when we looked at that um, from the uh, on the finance side, when we talked to the finance people, it was estimated that around six percent of the invoices didn't have a purchase order yeah. or a requisition. So basically, these the, you know whether there was fraud going on there or not, we don't know. But you know the, what, what it highlighted to me was the only control in the whole organisation was at the accounts payable part. So you know, the, 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 the initial steps of the requisition purchase order weren't being carried out. Um, so the only control was it in finance, and they they they'd outsourced a lot of the the outsourced the the uh, payment part. This was a this was a, a UK organisation. They outsourced the the accounts payable to India. Yes, it which, happens. Which to me, it didn't make sense. It happens. It happens. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they thought it, it makes sense because that it, it adds another layer of security, but it doesn't. Because now you've got individuals in, in in India. If they know that the first two parts of the, the organization's uh, control structure isn't working, the only control that's working is the accounts payable. So for me, as a fraudster, that's the area I would target because yes. there's only one control left. Yes, yes, yes. It's a big it's area. A it's, it's a big area, risk control, financial control. It's really yeah. a big area in companies, you know what I mean? So as we look into kind of wrap up uh, in the next few minutes, um, what, are, what are some of the, the, the reasons that you found that people are motivated to to do this kind of um, frauds and stuff, just from your own experience. I mean, let's try and get into them. You know, what, what, what are some of the, based on your own maybe understanding, belief, why do you think someone in an organization would want to commit such a, and do bribery and corruption and fraud and why? I mean, it's something that people of, you know, psychologists and, and professors of, have written loads of documents around over the years, yeah. and to be to, to be quite frank with you, I, I I've read some of it, and it, to me it's of no value because <laughs> you, you, that, that it doesn't lend itself to, to risk mitigation because just because someone has a financial you know you know, they've got significant debt at home, they're under a lot of pressure for you know, you know their marriage is broken down or or whatever, they're under a lot of pressure from family and friends, um, doesn't make them a, a fraudster. So when people commit fraud, they say, oh, that's because they were in ma- massive debt. That, that's a reason. So we can never understand why someone does it. I mean, you know, a lot of the big fraudsters are the most trusted individuals in the organisation. Yeah. You know, whether it's the CEO or someone in accounts payable or someone procuring, they're trusted leaders or trusted members of staff. So for me, um, we, can't, we can't lend ourselves to to the psychology of it and why they do it, it's a case of we need to put in a framework where we identify the risks. We, the, we have to put the mitigation in place regardless of whether we trust the staff or not because um, we have to st- trust the staff to, to build a great business. However, we must have compliance and mitigation in place. Um, and then the continual review process around that. You know, if there's new risks identify themselves, then we need to add that in place. And we can yeah, come yeah, from, yeah, 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 interesting, interesting. So you, you're saying that obviously people do it for different reasons. It's difficult to nail it down. But I like what you said, right? Because um, like, like I'm a director of, a, of, a, of an NGO and um, I'm, we're looking at some, you know, it's a small team, but we have to do some segregation of duties, you know? Yep. And we, we have to put in place some controls. Not because we don't trust people, <laughs> but, but because that's what you have to do, right? You have to do your controls. Yeah, absolutely. So to avoid people, even if they're trustworthy, you still need to be able to prevent and detect anything that, that might go wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, yes. no, and it's, it's absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm a, um, a trustee for a, a, in a charity, 
Yeah. And it, it's, it's, you know, I have to, I have to justify uh, the, the, you know, the, the money spent and, and protection of those monies. So it's vitally important in business. Should, I mean, business is slightly different because they don't need to. But for me, and, you know, particularly not-for-profit organization, we, ha- we have to protect the revenue. That's vitally important. It's very, and very, we have to, de- yeah. we have to demonstrate that. Yeah. It's very, it's very, 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 very important. Yes, yes. So one of my, one of my um, last ask, most asked questions all the time to people, um, obviously, it seems that you've done well for yourself. Um, whether, whether, whether in working in, um, you know, in a, sort of as an officer, as well as working in your own business. Um, you know, what does a wealth mindset mean to you? Mindset? A wealth, wealth, a wealth. Wealth mindset. Yeah. I mean, it's, for me, it's, if, if we have a wealth mindset, it's about, you, it's your personal development. It's your continual learning, mm-hmm. an attitude that you can succeed in everything you do. And, and not just not just yourself, but how you help others in the, in being the success they can be. So, and it's one of the reasons why I, I produce a lot of information on a website. I produce a lot of free doc, documents because I want everybody else to succeed in this. I want individuals to um, understand the importance of of education. Yes. Uh, and how it can impact the, their, their, themselves in this field or their organisation. So having a wealth mindset is, uh, is to me, is not just how, how we intake information, but how we give it out as well. Now, whether that's through charity or whether it's through our own business or, or through our own family, it's having that um, success mindset and how we help others. I like that. So it's that continuous learning and also giving back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good, good, good. All right, so, 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 Stephen, so if someone wanted to get in contact with you directly, I mean, where, where do you hang out? Where can they find you best? Um, yeah, tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, various locations. You can contact us through our, our website. We've got a contacts page there. I'm across social media on LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, you can certainly find me on there and contact me there. I think I'm on Twitter as well. Um, I'm happy for any conversations, any direct messages. Uh, and if you certainly if you want to talk about a solution or just want guidance, I'm more than happy. I, I do that on a consistent basis. If you want guidance and direction on, on what you need, uh, yeah. I'm more than happy to to have that contact. Yeah, and you operate globally. Am I correct? Like, so yes, you, that's, you, that's you, correct. Yeah. You, you, you look across. I mean, I mean, this yeah. podcast. I realize you're listening. I was just looking at some of the stats. You know, he's listening a lot in Cape Verde, Ghana. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, this is most actually in the US, interesting. Yes, uh, yeah. And again, because because they have, you know, you would think the US, you know, um, you know they've got a, a lot of law, you know, structures in place, you know, expertise there. But the, yeah. because the values, you know, in the billions, if not trillions of dollars worth of procurement, they get hit. It's yeah. just a natural thing. But, but they're interested in, in, in taking action. So that's probably why you know you have a, one of the reasons why you have uh, a lot of listeners because it, it adds value to to that. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. West yeah. Africa, uh, there's a lot of. I mean, we we operate um, in in West Africa, and and they're interested. They, they want to learn. They want to learn about risk, about finance, and, and to make an impact themselves into the country. So yeah, yeah, I yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I would imagine in West Africa, it's an emerging. Not to be much emerging. People are kind of under. Yeah, people are learning more and they're learning more. And um, and even the big the companies that are there, they also want to learn to operate more in a kind of a leading edge way, right? So I yeah. guess, the, the, as you said, have that wealth mindset, have that growth mindset, continuously Absolutely. learning, continuously upgrading. That means that you can operate on par with the West, right? So I think 
that's why I yeah. think there's a big uptake of people in um in, in those places. Even, even Cape Verde, um, lots of people listen to people listening podcast in Cape Verde. I was like, Cape Verde. <laughs> a part of the beautiful part of the world. I mean, and again, certainly in in the region, they're uh, they're really they're really enthusiastic, really interested, and particularly from a business perspective, you, you socially, you can really make an impact in people's lives, uh, and that's what yes, yeah, one of the areas I like about it is actual fact. It's not just about making business. So from the social perspective, you can really make an impact, and that's what I like. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's so, one, of the, one of the reasons why I focus on that area as well. Yeah, so it's great to have you on. I mean, if you can just send me like a, you know, a brief little bio or two paragraphs or something like sure. that about you, then what we'll do, uh, we, we, we'll edit this and we'll try and get it out um, at least <laughs> in, in the next week um, right, okay. um, or so, you know, because uh, yeah, I think I have a couple in the pipeline, but I'm, tra- I'm, tra- I'm trying to keep, keep, them, keep them running out, you know, and so it's really great to speak with you. Thanks, and um, as you said, hopefully, if we, hopefully we, we will be in touch anyway, because um, either okay. way, I mean, there are different people who I work with. I can pass them on to you or just build fantastic. a relationship. I think for me, doing a podcast is also about building relationships, you know? Yeah, exactly. and, uh, yeah. And we specifically target people who are kind of kind of earlier, earlier, even though you might have a lot of experience, but you're kind of fairly new into your business, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I find that those people are the people that I want to build a relationship with most. So, yeah, sure. So, so okay, great, so great, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for sharing lots and lots of gems. And I'm sure that we will speak again soon. Lovely. Thanks, Royston. I'd love to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can find out more about me by Googling my name, Royston Cumberbatch. I'm on all the social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can find me on YouTube as Roy Cumberbatch. And if you are listening on YouTube, please hit that uh, subscribe button. Or you can find me on my website at www.rackmac.com. That's R-A-C-M-A-C-S dot com. It'd be great to hear from you. And do feel free to tell me about any topics you want me to cover on future episodes. Until next time, be good to yourself and others. Keep positive and reaching for your financial goals. Bye-bye.